0: Sunday, uh, it is April 3rd,
1: 2011. Our message today is called Burning Barley Fields. As I began to look at what I wanted to preach about, I heard a message from uh, the late Jack Cove. It got my thoughts turned in a certain direction, but I had no idea until I got into the worship service today and began to worship just how right on target this was. I, during worship, had a vision. Of two men and one woman, one woman. A cloud of darkness was surrounding the man; it was controlling his thoughts, so that barely were any of his thoughts pure. Around the other man, there was a snake, and it was coiling around his neck so that he could not swallow.
0: <clears throat>
1: the woman is beside the point. But during our worship services, I began to prophesy, and other people did. One of three came forward to get free. This tells me that people are used to sitting in services. They're used to sitting in sin while hearing about righteousness. They are used to thinking that they can come to the Lord on their own terms. And why are they used to that? Because this is how shepherds have shepherded, and this is how sheep are used to living. We're used to believing that our righteous God will put up with unrighteousness in us that has not been dealt with. And it is not true. It's not true, but because of sin's subtlety, you can have your eyes put out of your head. You can have your head laying in the lap of a, of a prostitute. And you cannot even realize that the Spirit of God has left you. You can the entire time be claiming to be born again, Spirit-filled and on power. And this is called deception. And friends, if somebody was deceived and they knew it, they would not be deceived. You're deceived when you do not realize that that your life is unacceptable to God. You're claiming it's acceptable, and it in fact is unacceptable. I believe that there is a winnowing fork coming not just for our local body, but for the body as a whole in our nation. I think that there will be a great shaking. And the thing that the winnowing fork does is it separates. And one of the ways that it separates is when wheat is beaten, What is the crop, what is godly, what is the gold, falls to the ground and stays inside the threshing floor. Everything else that just looked like wheat but is really chaff, dries up and blows away. This is the great apostasy spoken of in Matthew 24. The love of most will grow cold. Everybody thinks that this scripture is true, but everybody thinks it is about someone else. This is very much like saying, oh, 80% of our nation claims to be a Christian, but one or two-thirds of all people polled don't think that their neighbor is saved. We have some data denial going on in the church. We have a situation where everybody says, oh yes, I'm a Christian, I'm God's child, but the fruit on the tree says something else and the winnowing fork is coming and it will separate. I didn't say this verse, John the Baptist said it. He said that Jesus had the winnowing fork in His hand. If Jesus is in our midst, then the winnowing fork is in His hand. Matthew teaches us in the 25th chapter that there will be a separation from sheep and goats. They look the same from a distance. But you know by their behavior that they are not the same. He taught about it as wheat and tares. He taught about it in as many ways as can be taught. I can't Teach it to you in another new way. But what I can tell you is something that I've observed from my own life. I can tell you what I've observed in the few years that I've been in church. What I've seen in your lives. And I beg you to listen to. me. Not because I get some special reward if I did. Friends, this is one of those messages that you don't get a pat on the back and a good sermon preacher. But if your hearers listen, and become believers. If they put into practice the Word that you teach, your rewards are eternal and can never be taken away. Turn with me to Acts 20. I want to put a little pressure on you today. I want to tell you that if you don't speak with me, if you don't respond, if you attempt to sit through this service and simply endure it, there is a huge chance that I will call you by name. So I want you to please do your very best to engage. Not because I'm behind a bully pulpit today, but because these things are important. Because there is a day where every man's name will be called. And that day will be too late. Today we practice what should be performed out there. Today, we have a chance to still make adjustments, course corrections, and get right. There will be a day when that is not the case. Paul saw the entire aim of his life in one direction. This is summed up in the 20th chapter of Acts and the 24th verse. Amen. Who else is there? However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Many people begin the work. Many people begin the race, but they do not all finish. That was a lie that someone made up as a security blanket to keep carnal people in a carnal state so that when they died, they died twice. Not everybody who begins finishes. The fact that you made a commitment when you were 8 years old is not enough the fact that you made a commitment 10 years ago and had a warm, fuzzy experience is not enough. We were given work to do. We were put in a race. And we must complete that work and we must finish that race. This man was striving for one aim, not to begin a work, not to participate in a work, not to start a race or run in it a while, but to finish that race and complete that work. If our goal and our aim is not only to begin, but to run well and to finish, then our enemy's goal is to steal from us, to kill us, to destroy us, to stop us from that aim. Many people begin. You know, I passed out a building list for things that we may do in this church. Things that I hope to do. Let's take the pressure off you for a moment. Have you ever known anyone that when you walked into their house, half a wall was painted? You could see where crown began to be put up, but wasn't finished. The front yard was cooked, but the backyard was wastey. Now I know none of you are those people, but have you ever known anyone like that? Have you ever known anyone that had a car and was excited because there are only fifty thousand miles on it, and realized that they had never changed the oil? Yeah, I know. Some of you are in this room. Don't act like you don't know what we're talking about. I fix your cars most of the time. You ever seen somebody surprised because there was a strange squealing noise coming from their brakes and they had 80,000 miles on it and had never had a brake job? Again, some of you are in this room. Our lives look this way spiritually. We think that because we started. We think that because we were put on good footing that nothing else ever had to be done. We bought into a lie that says because you were born again, because you couldn't work for salvation now that you're saved, there is no work. That's ridiculous. It's actually pathetic if it's not demonic. What has happened is we've shipwrecked things. We've stagnated them. Our faith, which is active and living and moving, has become stagnant. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I think I would run everybody out. Since I've come back from India, I'm throwing them out left and right. It's amazing when you see authentic Christianity, you're a whole lot less tolerant of things that are not authentic. We had a show of hands. How many of you have got to share in an inspired way about Jesus with somebody in the last 12 months? We're not going to have a show of hands, please. How condemning would that be? And God didn't bring you here to condemn you. He brought you here to save you. But that ought to be a convicting thought, shouldn't it? Surely in a year, 365 days, we should have found someone. In, in, In 12 months, we should have found someone. Maybe we should have found one every day or two. Maybe we should have found one every month. How many have seen somebody saved this year? I mean, authentically, scales fell off. They are in fire and love with the Lord. How long can we stand and say that we are the faithful son working in the harvest when there is no harvest? How long can we stand and say things like that? Now some of you have very fruitful lives. And fruit doesn't always look the same. It doesn't always result in a salvation. Fruit in your life may look like growth in someone else's. I can relate to that wholeheartedly. But by whatever measure God will use for you, you need to examine and say, how am I running?" Does my salvation simply chalk up to signing a prayer list one day? Was it an intellectual acceptance of a message followed by years of corrupted lifestyle? Paul had an aim. It wasn't just to run. It was to finish. It wasn't just to start a work. It was to bring it to completion, friends. Turn with me to John 5. We will find our testimony. Brandon, you're fast. That's good. I remember, Brandon, when you did not know any of the Word. The most (laughs) redeeming quality in your life, as far as I'm concerned, is that you have made yourself a student of the Word. The fact that you can sing, the fact that you have a soft heart, the fact that you have a great sense of humor is a small thing. The fact that you are a student of the Word shows you the pathway of life, and this is where your value comes from. Friends, do you know that until a man finds out who he is in the kingdom, what his purpose is, until a man knows that God esteems certain qualities in him, he will forever beat his head against the wall trying to prove that he's a man. He will disdain everyone that points to anything in his life that shows that he falls short of being a man. His insecurity will consume him to the point that He destroys anything good in His life. Until a woman knows that she is beautiful. Until she knows that she is desired. That the King of the universe is seeking such as her. Until she feels that down in her core. She'll do whatever it takes to obtain that feeling. Until the devil is consuming her life with something that is used to her. Own. This is the state of the church. Identity crisis. People don't know who they are. Living in sin. Hoping for an eternal outcome that the Word says cannot be. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. It doesn't get any clearer than that no matter how many theologians obscure the point. You have volumes of commentaries. You cannot get past a verse like that. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Oh, that was me before I got saved. (laughs) From evil doers come evil deeds, friends. We cannot live like hell all the way to heaven. We cannot refuse to do the work of the king and expect to receive the favor of the king. You cannot show up with no crops and expect that the landowner is happy. His investment was to get an increase. Are you in John
0: 5?
1: Let's look at John 5, picking up in verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. Friends, Jesus could stand and say, the work that I'm in the process of doing, and that God gave me to finish, not to begin, but to finish, it is my testimony. I live one of those kind of lives. There are some that love me. Praise God and thank you. I heard no amens. <laughs> Amen. And there are a lot that don't. That doesn't keep me up at night as much as it used to. I want to confess I still struggle with it some. But I hope something that becomes clear from the direction of my life Is that the work God has given for me to do is a testimony about who I am? I want to ask you Does your work testify about who you are in Christ? Or are you claiming to be something in Christ? You claim to have a job that there is no work evidence to support. What do you do if you show up and a man says, I am an accountant? And a good one. In fact, my father's happier with me. I've been an accountant since I was nine. I do not own a calculator. I cannot add two plus three. I don't know the basics of accounting, but I am an accountant. You would call such a man a hypocrite and a lie. But if he says he's a Christian, we say, oh, how could you know it's heart? Come on now, am I telling the truth or not? How could you know His heart? Who are you to judge Him? The man said he was an accountant. I expect him to be able to add. The man says he is a Christian. I expect to see Christ. Somehow or another, the wool's been slipped over our eyes. The bag is over our head. And the devil is waylaying those who call themselves the church. Because we've said it doesn't matter what's on the tree. All that matters is what is in our heart and we're deceived about what is in our heart. Because what is in your heart shows up in the deeds of your life. Oh, I love my wife. I love my children. I love my wife and my children. it goes God. And then it goes wife and children. This is me. This is me. But I deer hunt every single weekend. I work until everybody in my house is asleep. And when I have a chance, when I've been awarded a day off, I go spend it with the guys. But I love my wife and my kids. You call such a man a liar, a hypocrite, a false testifier. But let him say that about Jesus and we accept it at face value because who can know His heart? Our work testifies about us, friends, just as Jesus did. Turn with me to Matthew 21. If you're thinking, my God, I'm going to have to find another church, there's yeah, a barrier yeah. on this road to choose from. We have some that are African churches. We have some that are Greek churches. We have some that are Episcopalian churches. Some that are Methodist. In fact, it's a little bit like going to Luvius. Whatever meal suits you, you can go find. But I have a food. I have a food given to me from God. And that is not only to begin the Father's work, but to bring what He gave me to completion. And I'm on a mission to eat it all. To eat every bit of it. I might even gorge a little bit. If there's such a thing as a spiritual gluttony, I want it. If you were looking for the minimum, if you were looking at just what could I do to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, you're never going to be happy here. We do not shoot for the minimum. We shoot for Christ. Because this is what the Bible says to aim at. amen. I am thrilled to death for Christians working hard for the Lord in churches all up and down this road and Elders Road and every other. Praise God for them. But you're sitting in this seat because God brought you here today. So you can pretend that the message is not for you. It's for your friend on the left or the right or you know it's that one over there. I want to tell you, face to face, straight up, this message is for you. Pastor, were you talking about me today? Yes to all of you. We will give an accounting to a righteous judge, and he will not wink and say, You know, I like you the best. He won't do it. He will judge each man's work. Some of it's just going to be flat, burned up. Other will survive. So that the man himself made it. Well, that was those who built something. Good or bad, they tried. I don't think we're even going to have that conversation with people that built nothing. Are you in Matthew 21? Yes. Yes. Let us pick up in the 28th verse. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. And he did not go. It'd be too easy just to ask you, which of these two sons are you? But the truth is you've been both, haven't you? Hasn't there been many things that the Lord said "Do," and you're like, oh, I can't pick someone else? Hasn't there been other things that you're like, oh, yes, cleaning crew, I'm there! And somehow or another you didn't actually make it there? Aren't you glad we don't keep all those sign-up sheets? How about Children's Church? Oh yeah man, I'm there, you need, Pastor, you need anything and I'm there. Why are we begging people to, to keep our children there? Well you see, I got four kids and so I don't I don't want to be around kids on Sunday. You mean you got four kids in our children's church and you don't want to serve in the children's church? How does that work? How are you in Christ with such an attitude? Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do as long as it meets with my approval. Maybe maybe the Lord could say to my Lord. Did you catch that? Maybe this Lord could say too, my Lord. Isn't that what we're doing? are we proclaiming ourselves co-deity, co-regent? We're co-counselor? The Holy Ghost gets a suggestion, but we get an equal suggestion? We're kind of in a partnership? I think the way it was best expressed in this century was a bumper sticker said the Lord is my co-pilot. Yeah, how ridiculous, right? How ridiculous, right? Right. Amen. Unless, of course, it's true. Then it's not the saying that's ridiculous, it's the life that is ridiculous. The first thing oh, which one of the two did what his father wanted? We had one son who said no, another son who said yes, but the one who said no changed his mind. Isn't that a great story? Could we tell all of your story of your life in two sentences? I mean, how would we sum up Mario? If we had to do it in two sentences, how would that be done? It would be hard, right? Mario is a complex man. He's handsome and talented. He's a good father and a good husband. Works hard for the Lord. He's faithful. How would we sum him up in two sentences? But what we know about this one man in the Word is that he said no... And something changed his mind. Wouldn't you like to know what changed his mind? Mm-hmm. We act like the Holy Ghost is just a yes man. And Jesus is just an award ceremony. The lion of the tribe of Judah has no teeth. You know what's going to happen? Is that the Lord God will just pat you on the back and say, I love everything about you, Nolan. Everything is wonderful. Even your sin is good. It's not going to happen. This is not what the Word presents. Did you know that Psalm 58 said that the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked? you know how many times David prayed that the deeds of evildoers would expose them and their teeth would be broken from their mouth? One time, you have to give him points for for inventiveness. He says, Lord, crush their hairy crowns. It's good news for all us bald guys, right? Can I get an amen D? There is no such thing as a giant... Breck style, everybody plays, award ceremony. This doesn't exist. What does exist is a judgment before the Bema seat of Christ where every man in Christ or out of Christ receives what is due him based on his deeds. I said, but wait a minute, I thought I was forgiven of all that. Yes, we're talking about your deeds in Christ. You're credited with Jesus. But Jesus has told you to do things. Do you really think He's not going to demand an accounting of you for what He has told you to do? Unfortunately, the church really believes that. This is why obedience is optional to us. That's a profanity. That is a devilish thing. To begin to entertain the idea that obedience is optional in any area is abhorrent. The Lord says do this, but we hesitate. The Lord says do it now and we think about it for a while. Maybe form a committee. Most of the time when the Lord's will gets done is when you have absolutely no choice. You see no alternative. This is when the things that are hard get done. There's a man named Joab in the Word. Joab's name means... Oh, by the way, before we leave that subject about the two sons, has anybody read the parable right after? it About a man who owns a vineyard? Three times the owner of that vineyard sent people to try to change the situation at the vineyard. Why does anybody own a vineyard, by the way? Because you want grapes. You want wine. You want grape juice. Whatever it is you want. You want a product of grapes. Right? <laughs> this is what you want. If you're not getting it, you send a servant. If he doesn't get the results, you send him more servants. If that doesn't work, then you... God sent His Son to call them into account. Isn't that exactly what Matthew 18 describes church discipline as? You go with one, you go with two, and after that you bring them before the church which is the body of Christ, God's Son. It's exactly the same thing. It sounds to me like there's a process in place for dealing with a lack of obedience in the body. You know, the Great Commission doesn't say go forth and baptize. I mean, it says that, but it says a lot more. It doesn't say go teach them to believe on the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It says that, but it says a lot more. It says, teach them to obey. Can we really say we're fulfilling the great commission if all we're doing is telling people believe on Jesus? I know a lot of people that believe on Santa Claus. A lot that believe on the tooth fairy. I believed in the tooth fairy up until about five years old. My sister came in and told me, I'm the one to put that money up here <laughs> painful sometimes when deception slips away. We have a clinging clingy to it, finding a comfort. But I would rather live in the truth no matter what it costs. There's a man named Joab. His name means Jehovah is my father. That's a good name. He's David's nephew. People may not realize that immediately from reading the, the Scripture. But David's sister Zeruiah had Joab. She had a couple other boys too. Joab is a decorated military hero in Israel. In fact, universally in the Jewish writings, he's spoken of as a good guy. He's spoken of as a hero. Very many rabbinic stories place Joab as the hero of the story. He's called David's chief. He's called the commander of David's armies. He fought against Syria in one. He fought against Edom in one. He fought against the Ammonites in one. One time, One of David's sons, Absalom, rebelled against David. Ran David out of his palace. Joab successfully squelched that rebellion. Sounds like a hero. But when you examine Joab's life carefully, I find out that I like him for all of the wrong reasons. I identify with him. Because unfortunately there's a little too much of his nature in me. I want to tell you about it and see how you feel about it. If you don't squirm some my that, you're not being honest with yourself. We have an amazing capacity to self-delude. Why don't we do this? We'll read it and we'll see how it strikes you. If I'm wrong, somebody can tell me I'm wrong. Turn to Second Samuel three.
0: There. Yeah.
1: Michael, am I being too serious this morning?
0: There.
1: I asked Michael because I called him the serious one regularly. See, I asked for someone I thought would give me the right response. (laughs) Alright, we're in 2 Samuel. What has happened in the 3rd chapter is there has been warfare between the house of Saul and the house of David. This has primarily showed up through Ishbosheth one of Saul's sons, and David. After Saul fell on his sword in battle, a young man in his household took up arms and there began to be the beginnings of a civil war or a revolution, if you will, depends on the vantage point. And in the sixth verse, it says, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. So the entire time that there's battles going on between Saul's house In David's house, what is Abner doing? Strengthening his position. From a political standpoint, that may be wise. What is that from a kingdom standpoint, though? Who is the anointed king who is to rule? There's a message in Abner's life. Do you strengthen your position? Or do you do what it takes to see the one who is supposed to be reigning in your life reign? Those two things almost never go together. The cross is a narrow way. It will require you to become more and more vulnerable. It will increasingly be difficult and require more of you. This is why there are only a few who will be saved. Well, that's not a Scripture that's contemplated a lot, huh? A few who will be saved. What a scary thought. How many people do you know that claim to be saved? But the Lord looked out at a nation... Who was already said to be adopted as his children, and said, Only a few will be saved. What would he say to the church? So during this war, Abner strengthening his position. Skip down to the 12th verse. Something has happened. Abner has decided Ishbosheth can't win, and I don't like him very much. Let me go make a treaty, treaty with David. Because what Abner is actually interested in is not the outcome for the nation of Israel, but the outcome for him personally. He wants his position to be strong and he doesn't like Isposeph anymore, so let's go see if we can negotiate with the new regime. Then Abner sent messengers on his way, on, on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. I want you to to hear this, saints. We're not preaching about Abner. We're going to preach about Joab. But if somebody will only do the right thing because something's in it for them, stay away from such a person. We do not do the things that we do because we get some kind of secondary gain. You do them because they are the right thing to do. What is right is right without bearing or without considering... The consequences, whether good or bad. This is what it means to take a principled stand. You have to define these things today. Because we consider something good as an outcome for us personally. Something is good because God said it's good. It might be good that your son or daughter give their life for the faith. But it's hard for you to think of that as good. Something is not good because you get the right outcome, the thing that you want. It's good when God says it's good. And it's evil when He says it's evil. This man's morality was situational. But we're not preaching about Abner today because I know that wouldn't relate to you guys or me or anyone that you know. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I will demand one thing of you. Do not come into My presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, with you when you come see Me. So Abner is defecting, he's changing sides, and David has accepted this. There's a little problem, Joab's not there at the moment. Joab is out fighting a battle. When Joab comes back, we're going to read, he's not real pleased. See, in one of their previous engagements, when Abner was still the enemy, Joab and his brother were chasing Abner. And Abner said, hey look, uh, you'll quit chasing me, I'm going to kill that one. Joab's brother. Kept chasing me. said, look, you can't chase me to the end of the day. I'm eventually going to kill you. And he did. He killed Joab's brother. So now, Joab, now Joab's coming back from battle. And he's going to hear a story that says is now a good guy. He's on our team. Look with me then in verse 26. Later, when David heard about this... No, that's 28. 26. Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway as though he was going to speak with him privately. Joab said, look, Abner, I know you made a treaty with David, but would you come back so we could talk a while? By the way, could we do it privately? And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asiel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Can you relate it all to what Joab did? Could it be a mistake to take a mercenary for hire, somebody who fought against you yesterday and put them on your team today? I mean, what do you they call them bull weevils when one party switches party to another? What do you do if a man runs as a Democrat in 2008, but in January of 2009 when he couldn't win as a Democrat? He says, you know, I'm a Republican now. What do you do with somebody like that? You might call such a man a hypocrite, right? You certainly wouldn't vote for somebody like that. Maybe you would. I don't know. Can you identify with Joab? Joab says, this guy... Against us yesterday. Today he's supposed to be our friend and he killed my brother. So he murders him. Why do I call it murder? Well, they're not in battle. When your brother Asiel died, they were in battle. There's no battle going on here. It was a private meeting. And why private? So nobody could interfere. And how did he do it? Stabbed him in the belly. Stand up, Mike. If Mike and I are fighting, I'm probably not going to get to stab him in the belly. But I bet if I got close enough to hug him, I could. You're beginning to get that picture? Deception involved. Well, what's wrong? Is this bad or is it good? Well, politically, it looks like a good thing for Israel, honestly. We don't need Abner anyway. God has said they're going to win. Maybe Joab made the right call. But let me ask you, what was the will of the king? The will of the king was to show clemency. Have you ever been in a situation where the will of the king didn't make as much sense to you? Did you take matters into your own hands? What happens when we disagree with the way God would do things? Judah has traveled with me now for a school year and a half. He said, Dad, I saw you do something I don't understand. It. I said, What is it? He said, Why would you bless somebody that you know is wrong? I was glad that that's what he sold because there could be a hundred things that would go <laughs> another way. He <laughs> said, so do you think they're going to need our blessing more now that they're doing something wrong or less? He said, but that's not what they deserve. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who will give you what you need, not what you deserve?
0: Yeah.
1: This is the kingdom. Joab decided that David didn't know what was best. What would be best for Israel And of course, best for Joab personally would be to kill Abner. Look at verse 28. Later when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May His blood fall upon the head of Joab, upon all his father's house. May Joab's house never be without someone who who has a running sore or leprosy, or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. That's quite a curse. You ready for the kicker? Joab stays working for David. David had a soft spot. David knew what it was to be disobedient and be forgiven. David knew what it was to be shown mercy, and so he showed mercy. He gets a penalty. Joab does. You know what Joab's penalty for murder is? He has to dress nice and act nice at Abner's funeral. You ever seen penalties like that that are really not penalties? You know? Now, little Johnny, you threw that brick through the the window of uh, Fred's Lincoln, and that was not a good thing to do, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go tell Mr. Fred we're sorry. Is that a penalty? And then little kid walks up and says, Sorry. Is that a penalty? Friends, when there is no key to discipline, when there is no real judgment, It encourages sinful behavior. If you killed one person in your life and were rebuked for it, shouldn't that be enough? Well, examine the prison system and find out if it is, if that's how our nature works. Turn with me then to 2 Samuel 18. By the way, everything that Joab did this time was all out in the open. He didn't hide anything except the actual moment that he was going to kill him. But it's not like he said, oh, I didn't do it. It's not like he didn't own up to it. He, wanted, he, he, was, he was ready to own this action. Of course, he'd never been cursed publicly before either. Here comes the 18th chapter and the 5th verse. These are David's commands concerning his son Absalom. Starting in verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. In fact, if you look carefully in all of the parallel accounts, he says that no less than three times. I know Absalom's rebelled against me. I know that he's doing incredibly bad things. But when you go to war, I want you to be gentle with him. Is that merciful? Sure, that's incredibly merciful. Has Joab ever been shown mercy? Well, he just was. His life wasn't ended when he ended someone else's life. Let's then move forward and see what happens. Start with me in the verse 9. Now Absalom happened to, be to meet David's men. He was riding a mule. And as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in the oak tree. Now you're Joab. I mean, I hope you're not Joab. What is the clear command from from your king? Be gentle. gentle. Mercy. He actually says one time, do not kill him. But, let's face it, Absalom's embarrassed David. Absalom actually slept with David's wives on the roof of the palace so that everybody would know he was dishonoring his boss. Absalom amassed an army against David, then a man like that deserved to die. Maybe David just can't see straight, you know? Maybe David's not seeing straight because he's too close to this. Maybe I could help him out a little. Could you relate to that at all? The one in authority sees it one way. You have absolutely no authority in the situation, but you're sure you know better. Ms. Joyce Meyer said, if you have no authority in a situation, you should have no opinion in that situation. Well, she's wise, isn't she? Have you ever been in a situation where maybe it's what Jesus would do, but it's just not real practical, you know? I don't think it's what's best in the long run. I mean, after all, I need my job. After all, if I said that, do you know what would happen? Are you in the habit of weighing the consequences of doing what is right? You're only allowed to weigh the consequences of doing what's wrong. You understand? Doing what's right has no consequence. You know why? Your life is hidden in Christ and He's received that consequence. Doing what's wrong, it may have consequences. Paul told the Corinthian church they need to be careful when they took communion. Many of them were sick and dying because of the way that they were taking it. Ask Ananias and Sapphira if the lion of the tribe of Judah had teeth. Or not. When did we develop such an attitude that was devoid of the fear of God, that was convinced that everything in the kingdom was just a big award ceremony? When did we develop something like that? I know you can fill a stadium and get eighty thousand people to come answer a call like that. Of course, more than that, go to Disney World every year too. It doesn't make them sad. This is a serious thing, friends. We do not get the right to disagree with the king and do what we want to do. If you've heard teachings on the permissive will of God, you heard a fool for a speaker. And everywhere. And if it's not preached, it certainly is lived that way. What verse were we in? 9, 10, 11, 10. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there?" Then I would have given—I would have had to give you ten thousand shekels of sil- silver and a warrior's belt. Oh, I would have rewarded you for breaking the king's command. The what is a shock? It's an exclaim. Isn't it funny that people can be shocked when you do what is right? Well, that says something about the spiritual climate of our nation. If people are shocked when you do the right thing. Let's pretend for a minute that an armored vehicle is driving down this road, right? They make a turn. They come through here. The truck turns over. Money goes everywhere, into the field, everywhere. Some of it even rolls into the warehouse. Should they be shocked if they get back every penny? They, should they be shocked or would that be the right thing to do? But you've got to know Susie, Johnny, us four no more sitting here praying for the Lord to bless us and nobody else go. Oh my Lord, look a blessing! There's money on the ground everywhere. Finders keepers, it's in the book somewhere. (laughs) What a man's heart wants, his mind tends to justify. So you can just be sure that cheating on your taxes is okay. Everybody's doing it. You can just be sure that things that should shock us are okay to the point that the only thing that shocks anybody anymore is when somebody actually does it rightly. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you, Abishai and Itziah, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. If I had put my life in jeopardy, And nothing is hidden from the king. You would have kept your distance from me. What does that tell you about Joab's character? Even those who were subordinate to him knew in the end that Joab did what was best for Joab. So if the young man had killed Absalom and David was not happy about that, Joab would have stood back in the distance and watched the young man get a punishment. Friends, do you know who else did something like that? When a serpent, a serpent, got a judgment, crawled on his belly and eat dust all of his life. When in reality, it was a spiritual power acting through that serpent. See, the devil is trying to use people as patsies. The question is, are you going to beat one? Do you see the king's commands as up for debate? Are they situational? You know? I mean, I know he said it, but my situation is different you know how many times as a pastor I end up in the same argument with people? They're basically trying to explain to me that God's Word won't work in their life. They're the exception to the rule. And see, if I understood their circumstances, if I just took another hour to hear them whine, I mean explain their circumstances, (laughs) then I would surely side with them. God has an answer for such behavior. But I just want to tell you about this one. Whereas Joab did something... In the first scenario, that was all out in the open and there was a correction. In this case, he takes three spears and throws them through Absalom. He sends a runner to give the report to David that Absalom's dead. But what he did not say it was how he killed him. I know you're never in situations where you tell the part of the story that you wanted to tell correctly, but the real truth lies in the part you didn't tell. I stood in an altar one day doing ministry with another pastor. The young man says, I don't know why my brother's acting like that. It's just not fair. I mean, we got into an argument, and it's true that I picked up a stick, but it's just not fair. He's treating me like a criminal. The other pastor who was older and wiser than me looked at him and said, did it have Louisville slugger written on it? How did you know that? He said he picked up a stick. Is that true? Yes, but it was a stick shaped a lot like a baseball bat." And he wanted to know why his brother was treating him that way. Do we shape the truth to be something that justifies us? Well, isn't that an interesting thing? When you recount the injustice that someone is doing against you to your, not your prayer team, I'm sure, your relatives, your friends, right? Do you only tell the part of the story that makes them look guilty and you innocent? You make sure they understand just how wrong you were. And if the king says, don't harm that person, whether they're a criminal or not, it's up to me. Don't harm them. You go ahead and assassinate their character? Murder them with words? Okay, well maybe you don't, but I do these kind of things. None of more than I want to. the crushing weight of god's conviction in my life for having too much joe out there looking like a loyal guy on the outside and the service of the king most of your life but in the end at best he's a co-ruler with you because when it comes down to it you do what you want to do i've got a lot of that in me If, if none of you do i'll understand but it benefits me to speak these words out loud. There's no penalty for killing Absalom. And there's no penalty because he never confessed. Now, there's no penalty stated in the Bible, but God has a way of doing things, you know. How about this one? Turn with me to 2 Samuel 19. you good. We're going to pick up in the 11th verse. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abathor the priest Ask the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you were not the commander of my army in the place of Joab. Now David never says why he does this. In fact, it could just look like a wise political move. He wants to reunite the kingdom after Absalom tried to split it. So maybe that's why he picked Amasa. Or maybe God saw what Joab did, even if David didn't. And so he moved the pieces around to bring some humility and some correction into Joab's life. What is going on in your life to get your attention Do you really think that hidden sin goes undealt with? Why do you think God tried to call it out in worship? Do you think that because you don't go forward? Do you think that because you repent privately and receive and then plan to commit the very same sin next afternoon? Maybe you don't even wait that long. Then it will go unpunished? I want to tell you, that would make God a fool. That would make Him somebody that could be mocked. But he's serious. And he's serious because his son died that you could be free from sin. His son's reputation is on the line and invested in you. I mean, when you call yourself Christian, you are calling yourself a part of his son. By the way, Joab had an answer for Amasa as well. Look at the ninth verse of the 20th chapter. Joab said to Amasa,
2: "How are you, my brother?"
1: Boy, how many people have greeted you with the term brother, and they had murderous intentions in your heart? I got relationships in my life. If not there, they'll say the most nasty, ugliest things about me. I pick up the phone and call them, or go visit them, say, "Hey, brother, how are you?" Oh, I'm just thinking about you, just just loving you, wishing the best for you. You don't have any relationships like that, do you? Come on, you don't have any relationship. Zeke, do you have any relationship? Zeke's got a few like that. All right, now let me ask the rest of you since Zeke answered that question. We ask you, not Zeke. Are you that other brother sometimes? You really don't like this guy? You really don't think that he's got any merit in his life? You'd rather never have to see him again. But he's now shown up in front of you. What do you say? Oh, praise God, brother, how are you? We don't like it when it's done to us, but we do it to other people, don't we? Joab had an answer for Amasa. He greets him. He says, Hey, brother! Then his, his knife drops out of his belt. Amazing how that just knife keeps flopping out. I, I bet it's still wet with the other couple murderers' blood. And when he bends down to pick it up, I'll be darned if it didn't find its way right into the belly of Amasa. He killed this replacement. Now, on one hand, you could say, hey, he's doing Israel a favor. And the reason is, is Amasa was inept. I mean, one thing Joab is, is he's a good soldier. Amasa's not. He's a pitiful soldier. He doesn't even show up on time. He can't amass the army. He He's not carrying out David's commands. So Joab did David a favor. David made a bad personnel choice and Joab fixed it. Of course, was there something in it for Joab? Well, yeah, this guy had his job. We, we're not ever that way, are we? We never look and say, Lord, I don't know why you favor this guy the way you do. It would be a whole lot better if... We don't have the right to second-guess the king's commands, friends. The result of Joab's life is in 1 Kings. It would be the first chapter and seventh verse. But you know what? You don't have to read it, I'll tell you. David had yet one more son. He was the oldest... But David was determined that the oldest would not be king next. Bathsheba's son Solomon would be king next. So, Joab, I mean, he spent his entire life second-guessing David, but appearing to be loyal. He says, you know, this is not right. This child was born of sin. This is not right. This child, the youngest. This is not right. The oldest living child should be king. So he supports Adonijah in open rebellion against King David and against Solomon. The rebellion that had always been hidden in his heart and showed up periodically through his actions was now going to define his life because he dies at the hands of Solomon's servants for rebelling and supporting Adonijah. By the way, why might David have taken the youngest son and made him king? Because he was the youngest. youngest. Do you think that maybe David understood that God's ways were a little different than man's ways Mm somehow? But Joab only understood what was expedient. Let me ask you, what defines your actions? Expediency for you or sacrifice for you? Because in the end, Joab was self that's what defined his life. Nearly everything that he did in support of David caused him to rise, and everything that he did, appearing to defend David, was really defending him. What is your Christian life like? Turn backwards a couple of chapters for me. Put a second 2 Samuel 14. Can y'all bear with me for a minute? Yeah. That's good news. You may not like that you said yes. Because what I've told you so far is what a life looks like that is characterized by selfishness, by sin. What a life looks like that has divided loyalties. That is loyal to Jesus, but equally loyal to your own interest. What I've told you is what the average person's life actually looks like. What I haven't told you is that 2 Samuel contains the answer for dealing with people just Like Joab. Did you find any identification with Joab? Okay, Dustin was the only one brave enough to say yes. If you found anything in Joab's actions that you think at some point in your life you may be able to identify with, why don't you give me an amen? Amen. Okay, so there was more than just brave Dustin. I want you to hear how Absalom used to deal with Joab. This is an interesting thing in the 14th chapter, picking up with me in the 29th verse. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. This is kind of like the workers in the vineyard. We sent somebody, but they didn't come. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Do you remember the parable earlier? I sent first a servant, They've used the servants, so I sent more servants. Still didn't come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Something he's invested in. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did did go to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? I want to ask you, church, does God have to light something on fire in your life to get you to come to His presence? Is obedience optional? Does He say, I want thus and so, and you're like, mm, I can't hear you. Does He say, look, I want thus and so, and you're like, well, I'm going to form a committee and we'll see what that say"? Does He have to leave you no choice? How many times has God said, I want you to move? And you say, oh, I can't. I can't change jobs and all that. This one's secure. I mean, I, I need this paycheck. Only to find out you got fired. How's that not setting your field on fire? How many times has God said, I want you to go get right with this relative? And you're like, mm, I don't think so. Uh, that, that's probably not God. I mean, it's not wisdom. And God's all about wisdom. So, I mean, He's the author of wisdom. It can't be God. And then lo and behold, you've run into them in a grocery store or something. got no choice. How many times has God had to force your hand by burning your fields? Obedience that's forced is not nearly as sweet as obedience that is given. In fact, it might not be obedience at all. It's more like subjugation. Are you a subject in the kingdom? Are you a son of the kingdom? Does God have to burn your barley fields? What does it look like when God burns a man's barley fields? Turn with me to Judges. Yeah, don't zip up your Bibles. Uh I don't have a board of deacons. I don't have anybody except the Lord that tells me when we're done. And if you want to be done right now, you're released. Go ahead. I still have a word that I want to deliver. So don't zip up your Bibles. Don't close them. Don't don't look away. Don't look at your watch. I put one clock in this church on the back wall. And and I did that <coughs> because I'm in charge of when the service is. I'm not trying to be ugly to you. I'm just telling you, if you want the minimum, I excused you before this service started. But if you want what God has, then please give me your full attention. We're going to be in Judges um, 14. Amen, Brandon. Y'all can't beat Brandon. Ever since Mandy left, Brandon's in first place. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. That's pretty demanding, isn't it? Mom, Dad, you in the room? I mean, could I have sent you all to Fred and Suzanne's house? I want Jennifer, get her for me! (laughs) I was scared to death to go see Fred that day. I was sure he was going to say no miracles never stop his father and mother replied isn't there an acceptable woman from among your relatives or you among all your people you know i know i come from uh texas and louisiana but even in all of my people nobody ever wanted you to go get a wife from your own relatives <laughs> that's an interesting thing isn't it you know uh, now that Mandy's out here i don't know who to tease with arkansas humor but uh, Really? You don't have any cousins you can choose from?
0: (laughs) His father and mother
1: replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time... They were ruling over Israel. Before we move forward with that, it was not God's will that he get a wife. But it was God's tool to use to get Samson to do what he was supposed to be doing. Do you remember why Samson was born? He was born to begin the deliverance of Israel. Is he beginning the deliverance of Israel? No, he's not doing it. So God begins to burn fields. So, said, well, it doesn't look like he's burning a field. He's just getting a wife his wife is going to be unmitigated problems for him. You know why? After he falls in love with her, she gets given to someone else. Lo and behold, you know what Samson ends up doing? Declaring war on the Philistines. So well, what could put a man in such a state as to have to have God burn his fields to get him to be obedient? Well, Samson's been hanging around vineyards. One thing Nazarites don't do is hang around vineyards. I mean, there's a lot of grapes there, you know. And then he killed the lion. I mean, out of a vineyard. shouldn't even be there. Then he goes back sometime later just to look at it. He's not supposed to have been there the first time. And when he looks at it, he sees something sweet growing in something that's dead. Dead animals are unclean for Jews, much less Nazarites. He's not supposed to touch it or eat it. Not only does he get it and eat it, he begins to give it to his relatives. Of course, he does not tell them where he got it. Hidden sin in people's lives doubles you to God's voice. and you begin convincing yourself it's okay. And why is it okay? Well, when that lion attacked me, I killed it. No, well, that was God's mercy. That was not an endorsement for your sin. In fact, in the end, may not you can argue about whether it was God's mercy? You know why? It emboldened him to keep going back. What if every time you hit clip somewhere you weren't supposed to clip, a lightning bolt came from heaven and hit you in the forehead? <laughs> Probably just be one click, huh? <laughs> right. But when you can click and then just kind of erase your history. I hope no one sees. You. And oh, we're good. Because you didn't get caught. When you can gossip and slam, but because you're skilled at it. Nobody attributes it to you. Well I didn't get caught you need to be careful. God might light your fields on fire to get something out of your life that is worthwhile instead of the garbage he's getting there. Samson's fields were lit on fire, literally. In fact, when he realizes his fields are on fire, he goes and ties foxes together and puts fire on them and lights the Philistine's fields on fire. Well, maybe it was only Samson. Turn me to Acts 8. We're gonna close here soon. <laughs> there, there. The gospel of the kingdom would be preached where? Oh come on, Bible scholar. Where? <laughs> it would be preached in Jerusalem? Judea? Samaria and the, the end of the earth. But nearly ten years after the resurrection, we are still camped out in Jerusalem. Judea. We had not made it as far as Samaria yet. So ten years of contemplating will of God. You've never been in that situation though, have you? You don't know good and well that the Lord told you that your life is supposed to involve something and you know you're just kind of waiting for the right moment. You know how times I've heard, I just don't know how to begin. Well, I'll tell you, it starts with beginning. That's where you start. <laughs> Why, I, I just don't, I don't know what to do. Well, pick something and do it. For sure, that will work better than what you're doing now. I don't know how to change my scenario. The first way to change is always repent. It needs to pick a new, direction and do something. God will light a fire to get you to choose a new direction. Are you in Acts 8? Yes. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Stephen, of course, died. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout... What's those words? Judea and Samaria, the first two stops on the way to all of the world. It took a great persecution to move the body of Christ off of home plate. Sometimes our faith gets high-centered. It gets shipwrecked. We get comfortable in our daily lives. And so our God will provide something to push you off of center. It could be a firing. It could be the death of somebody that you love. We don't get to choose what field gets burned. We just get to choose whether or not we're going to be obedient or not. And you need to know when He calls times, He will call you before He lights something on fire in your life because you belong to Him. It's better off for the man who never said He belonged to the Lord the than the one that claims Him as Lord but does not do what He says. You're subject to serious discipline because He loves you. By the way, when it says scattered, This is a very unique word in Greek. Dia means to separate. Spira means to sow as to plant. Now when Jews were scattered all over the world in the previous centuries, people call that a diaspora. This is a different word. That means to open a bag and just throw it everywhere. But a diaspora means I'm going to separate you from something and then intentionally plant you where I want you. You see, they were stuck to Jerusalem. So God used the work of the enemy. He's big enough to do that. To separate them from the thing that they were glued to. So He could plant them in the places He wanted them. Well, do you need some diaspora in your life? Because they could have just in the previous 10 years said, you know, Jesus said do it, so I'm going to say yes, sir. See, there were two kinds of sons. One who said no and later changed his mind, another who said yes but didn't do it. What might it take to get you to change your mind if you're saying no? Well, it might take your fields being lit on fire. Turn with me to First. No, don't turn there. You turn to John four. I want to tell you there, First Peter one two. Matthew, you can come up here. 1 Peter. The first chapter and second verse is what I'm talking to you about while you're turning to John 4. He names the brothers throughout the providences. He says that they are dearly loved and chosen by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Christ Jesus. Why were you chosen, saints, to be obedient? Why are you empowered? be obedient? Why were you quit to be obedient? What would you do if you invested everything that you had, the most precious thing that you had? I don't know. Let's just say in a prize horse. But it wouldn't run. You might put the whip to it and teach it to run. Great investment was made in it. The winnowing fork is in his hand. The question is, how do you respond? How many fields have to be lit on fire? Is it enough to be warned? Is it enough to be warned by two people? Or does something literally have to burn in your life? You know, suffering has a way of eliminating all of the superfluous. Have you ever been next to somebody's hospital bed when they were dying? They didn't sit around usually and talk about what star was wearing the latest ashes. They're usually trying to get right with God and their fellow man. They're usually trying in their last hours to be obedient. And if they're not, it's because so many times they refuse the king's call and so many times their fields have been burned that there's nothing left in their life but ashes. So what you hear is bitterness. Friends, a burning of a field can be a good thing. It can make it more fertile. You get to determine how you respond to this. Are you in John four? Yes. In John four, starting in verse thirty-four, "My food," said Jesus, "the thing that sustains life in me is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish this work." It was not enough for you to start it. It was not for you enough for you to enlist in the army. You actually have to complete what He's giving you to do. Listen to what else He says. Mm-hmm. Do not say four months more and then the harvest. Don't procrastinate. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad to get it. If you had to open your eyes and look at the fields around you, are they on fire because you've been disobedient? That has a double meaning on purpose. They're on fire because people are going to hell daily. They're on fire because the only way that God can get your attention sometimes is to burn the fields around you. We have to open our eyes and complete our work. We don't have time for low living. Those things are supposed to be over. King Asa served God on 2nd Chronicles 16 almost all of his life. But at the end of his life, he began making treaties. began compromising. God gave him a disease in his feet. That's a strange thing, isn't it? In the hopes that he would turn to it. But he didn't. He only turned to physicians. So a king that could have been a hero dies a failure. Kind of like Joab, who could be a hero, dies a rebel. How is your life going to finish? Because it won't be determined in some future place. It's determined right now by what to do. And if nothing else, you definitely are hearing a message today that it is the truth about God. It may not be the guy that fills lots of seats, but it should be the guy that spurs a person in these seats. Something glorious. Repentance. We're going to take communion together. But just like there's been pressure upon you this entire service, you talk about pressure. This is the one thing in the scripture where Paul actually said, don't do this in an unworthy manner. That's not to scare people from taking it. It's the wrong conclusion to come to. To go, you know things aren't quite right with my life, so I will not take communion and continue in my present state. It's to force you into a position where you say, I choose you, Lord. Make no mistake. You can't choose the cross and not choose communion. You follow what I'm telling you? Both require you to swear your life with God and walk right. And to think that you have the cross but will walk out on communion because, you know, I don't want to invite judgment on myself. Now, that was never an option. There's already judgment on you. If you know that you're in sin and won't get right, you're already in judgment. You cannot leave this building and go contemplate doing something that's wrong. You're living with somebody? Stop it. Stop it. Get married or get out. Your computer's causing you sin? Put it somewhere else. Throw it away. Give somebody else a password for it. Some of you have things that you need to get rid of that choke you that choke you for years in the kingdom and you're unfruitful because of it. Others of you love the Lord so much and they just want to produce fruit. You may be grieved at hearing these kind of messages. I'm sorry, we can't rest until everyone is standing there
0: spotless.
1: I'm not telling you I'm better than you I am Joab. The reason I can see those things in his life is they're present in mine. But I'm also Christ. And I'm counting Joab dead. That means concrete actions. Don't tell me you're going to repent and you don't have a step in mind to repent. Repentance equals movement. Not intention to move. That's not repentance. That's guilt and it won't do anything for you. It's actual movement. You fall into a sin every month of your life and you still have the means to commit that sin, you need to do something about it. Come on, are we speaking the same language here? Yes. We're going to worship just a little bit. I'll leave you in communion if anybody wants to take it. I hope you will. And maybe you need to repent for God having to burn some bridges in your life, burn some fields in your life. Maybe you had to force your hand because you would not do it willingly. Say, never again. Lord, if you whisper to me, I'm going to be obedient. I won't sit and contemplate the consequence of doing what you tell me to do anymore. I'm just going to run to the charity if you tell me to go. Can you say amen to that? If that's true, then what you'll have in this room can change a nation. you know how I know that? Jesus did it with only twelve. He did it with only 12. If we really have every person in this room, 50, 60 of you, something like that, that we're no longer contemplating the consequence for doing what He tells you to do, we will begin to change the world. If what we have are people that are so calloused in their heart they can hear any message and continue in the same way that they've always been, then we'll just have 60 people in a room. It's up to us, guys.
0: Just stand up. That's worship.
3: Yeah. Don't make God burn your fields. We have come into his house, gathered in his name to worship him. We have come into his house, gathered in his name. This
1: words of Jesus are hard. He looked right at a rich young ruler and said to go sell everything he had, then come follow him. But I love the way one of the Gospels puts it. It says he looked at him and loved him. Friends, the Lord may have put a very difficult thing upon your heart. It may literally feel like you'd be crucified to be obedient to it. It may look like nobody could possibly understand what it's going to cost you telling you He would only tell you because He loves you. And He knows what is best for your life. You cannot hear from God while swamped in sin. can't do it. When we eat this cracker, what you're doing is pledging to consume the Word of God as your food. You're pledging that whether what He's told you is hard or easy, bitter or sweet, you're going to take it down into the very center of you so that it promotes life. That means no matter how hard the conviction was and what He told you to do, when you eat this practice, you're pledging to do it. That you will accept that. That the consequences fall where they may. If that's the way that you want to embrace the Savior, I encourage you to eat it. Eat it as a symbol of what He did for you and what you're planning to do for Him. doesn't too easily. Sometimes the word of God doesn't eat. Not all that pleasing to the flesh, but it is life given to the Spirit. The flesh counts for nothing and the Spirit is life. He poured out all he had. How do we hold anything in reserve? How can we say but this one area, Lord, I need to stay in control of it. You, you can't. When you drink of this cup, you're proclaiming the death of your vision, the crucifixion of your flesh, the death of your plans, and the acceptance it. Yeah. It's like a wedding. You cease to be who you were, and you become something new. It's not magical because of the cup. It's full of faith because of the trust that prompts you to do it. That's your heart. You can drink of this cup now because you and I will do it in the kingdom together.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. They took Jesus. Our Jesus. Our Lord. Our Savior. They beat Him beyond description. They pressed upon Him a crown of thorns. They couldn't possibly know what they were doing, but they were so mimicking something were mimicking an atonement day where a goat would have a red cord placed on his head. A circle. The high priest would put all the sins of the people on that goat. Then they would lead it outside the city. <coughs> our king had our sins placed on him. They led him outside the city to die. This is a somber moment I know but in a break from protocol, I'd like you to consider one other thing. If you have been carrying sand all year, been carrying sand all your life, if you've been feeling the effects of burning fields all around you all of the time, if it's been burning your eyes and chafing your throat, how happy are you to see that goat leave the building? How happy are you to watch it walk away carrying something that used to be yours? How light and how free? You mm-hmm. Friends, preaching on sin should bring conviction to bring change. If that conviction lingers because there is no change, it begins to become condemnation, know that too is in your hands. Our God is not saying that you are not and never will be. He's saying you're better than this if you can. That's what He's saying. Mm-hmm. He's saying if something's hard, if there's a consequence, mm-hmm. I will give you strength. Telling you if there was ever any penalty, he'll take it upon himself if you'll just leave your life standing walking. How happy are you when the goes to the The King of Kings is able to wash away all wrong. That's what that meal symbolizes. You ought to feel in this moment like all has been washed away. Like you stand with baby skin on your heart before him. The only thing that's required, and it's a big one, is obedience. You've now given up your right to choose the path of your life. He tells you what to do. You say amen that the goat has left
0: the building.
1: Amen. Let us pray together and pledge our obedience. And when we say amen, let's let it be a real amen. A true one. so be it unto God. And then we're going to do what would happen at a wedding. We're going to do what would happen any time somebody felt new and light and free. We're going to go next door and we're going to feast. Princess party in 1999 won't have anything on
0: us.
1: (laughs) Ours would be an odyssey but not in space. Right here in 2011 we're going to have an amazing event because everybody who walks into that building ought to be sent free. Ought to be blood-bought, spirit-filled, obedient saints of the living God. That is God's will, Mighty God, Lord, we embrace You as our Father. We thank You, mighty God, for carrying a weight that we were never meant to carry. We thank You, Holy One, that on that mountain You did provide. We thank You, mighty God, that our wrongs done yesterday do not have to follow us tomorrow. We thank You, mighty One, then whatever You have required of us, whatever You have asked of us, You have also given us the strength to do. We thank You, Lord, that Your grace is sufficient. We thank You, mighty God, that Your mercy triumphs over judgment. We thank You, Lord God, that You have called us stain free. Free from accusation. You have called us a pure and radiant bride. And You have provided Your Word to wash our hearts and minds and keep us pure and white. Lord God, we ask that Your Spirit would be upon us now. That the oil of joy would be poured in our hearts once our obedience has been complete. Lord, that we could have a festival, a holy convocation, that we could rehearse next door a feast like the feast of Abraham. Lord, that death will be rolled away from us. In the name of Jesus, God's people said,
3: Amen.
0: Amen. Amen.
3: Can we sing a worship song and then go next door? Yeah. <laughs> well, take this offering that I bring. Only I fall on my knees to proclaim your everything. My life's nothing without you. Take my hand and me me through, you are my sustaining love.